Well, this morning we are going to uh, uh, continue our study in uh, the, the book of Breshit, Genesis, in the beginning. And we are up to Noah. And uh, last week, we uh, technically what we did is finished the genealogy of chapter 5, even though it's in the, f- the first uh, four or five verses of chapter 6. Uh, and then uh, we saw the condition of the world by this time, right? Uh, and this is hundreds of years, you know, after uh, Adam, uh, Adam and Eve. And we see the dilapidated condition of the world, uh, and uh, uh, that God is horrified by it. And we talked about God being grieved, right? And we, we talked about his sorrow uh, over it, and we made application about grieving God uh, today and what that means in terms of our own lives and so on. And uh, then in verse uh, uh, 7, we see there, the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. You know, literally, it means like to wash, to wash man away. It's kind of interesting. I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things, to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. You know, it's interesting uh, as we begin now this, this portion, the, uh, the ramifications of sin on the natural world is very interesting when you think about this. Because the, the, those who have sinned here is man. But we see that in uh, the flood, the animal world suffers, uh, and the rest of the natural world suffers. Uh, a worldwide flood is horrendous uh, on everything, right? On, on the environment, on, uh, the, uh, on, on uh, everything that God has made. And we might ask ourselves, why is that? Why is it that, uh, you know, the animals are uh, suffering here uh, over the sins of, of a man? And uh, to understand that, we need to remember, when you go back to the creation... Do you remember what we said at that time? That everything was created for man. It's not just that there's like a checklist in the creation and God made this, check it off. God made this, check it off. God made this, check it off. God made man, check it off. And everything is equal. No, no. God created uh, the entire world for man to dwell in as a place for man to dwell and to oversee and to have dominion over and to rule. And just like a nation, for example, that has a leader who is evil, uh, who is not moral, uh, and is not ethical, it, it doesn't just affect the leader, does it? It affects the entire nation. It affects everything in the nation. Well, that is exactly what takes place in the world because of the rebellion of man. Because of the rebellion of man, man is called to have dominion and oversight over the whole creation. When man rebels, the whole creation suffers. And it's very interesting because if you turn to the Brit Hadashah in the book of Romans, in the eighth chapter, you read, some of you are familiar with this. Let's see, beginning in verse 18 of Romans 8. In the New Covenant, 
It says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us, or, or in us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan with it within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption, the redemption of our body. That the redemption of the world is tied in to the redemption of man, the redemption of the earth, the, the redemption of the created world is tied to the redemption of man. Because the world was made for man. And so how important it is to understand that. And boy, uh, you know, when you read these verses, as we'll see the next few verses in uh, Genesis chapter 6, that um, uh, most certainly uh, we see in our own world still the rebellion of man. Just look around. And when you look at everything in the world, from the animal world to the environment to uh, the way people conduct themselves in relationship to others and the world around them, why is the world the way it is? The world is the way it is because of the rebellion of man, just like here in uh, Genesis chapter 6. Now, we might, we'll see how much time we have, we might revisit that Romans passage uh, again in in a few minutes. But anyway... So we see here that God says, because of the sinfulness, the wickedness of man, see verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent and the thought of his heart was only evil continuously. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. And the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals, to creeping things and the birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. So it seems like all is lost, I, I, certainly. But then we read in verse 8, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the, gener- these are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Now, we get a hint uh, about Noah if you remember, in chapter 5, right? And uh, at that time, we said that in the genealogy in chapter 5, which begins with Seth, the son of uh, Adam and Eve after the Cain and Abel debacle, that if you count the years, how long people lived, that when you go down to verse 28 of uh, Genesis 5, And it says, And Lamech lived 182 years and became the father of a son. That after Lamech dies, but before Noah is born, that is when Adam dies. That is when Adam dies. And so it's very interesting that after Adam dies, we read about another son from the genealogy of Adam and Eve through Seth. Right? It says, Now he called his name Noah. This one shall give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands arising from the ground which the Lord had cursed. 
So right from the get-go here, we see, before we get to the story of Noah and the genealogy of Noah, that Noah is like a messianic figure. I mean, that, that's a good way to phrase it. Noah is a messianic, he's not the Messiah, but he's like a messianic figure. He's a, he is a deliverer. Uh, and, uh, and so therefore, when we that's like his introduction, right? Uh, and so now in chapter 6, we read here, but Noah, in verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now, it's important for us to understand that uh, Noah is not the deliverer here because he's righteous and, and blameless. It's because of the grace of God, because of the favor of God. Okay? Very important. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Achen, that is the word for grace, really, in the Hebrew Bible, in Hebrew. He found grace. He found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Okay? Now remember, again, that the whole thing is set in the context of a genealogy, of a very long genealogy. And so now we come to the genealogy of Noah and his sons. And it comes to us in the form of a, uh, of a, a narrative, of a story. Okay? All right? So we see that Noah is a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Wow, three biggies, right? He's a tzaddik. So that's kind of interesting. He's a tzaddik. That is the Hebrew word for, uh, for righteous. Now, here is something that's kind of interesting, we read about people being called uh, righteous, like uh, when Abraham believed God, it was reckoned unto him as righteousness. We uh, hear, we read of people doing righteous acts, but you know what's really interesting? In the uh, uh, Torah, Noah is the only person who's actually called a righteous man. It's kind of interesting. People are described in, in righteous terms. But Noah was a righteous man. Noah was a tzaddik, right? Now, <clears throat> this means that he was a man, we would say, you know, we like to, there's terms we like to use. He was a man who, was, who had like a heart for God. He was a man who lived in the way of the Lord, like the derech, I don't know, the, the way of the Lord. And it's very interesting here uh, that it says that because Certainly, this is long before Moses, long before there's a, a Torah, but we read about people who walk in God's ways before uh, there was the Torah, the written Torah anyway. We read about Abraham, right? The great eulogy of, uh, of Abraham's uh, life, uh, that uh, he walked after the ways of God and kept his laws, statutes, and commandments. It's interesting that it uses that terminology in Abraham's day when there was no written uh, Jewish or, you know, is Israelite law of uh, uh, commandments. Uh, yet we read it about Abraham. And so we see here that uh, Noah was a man uh, who was righteous. And he's also called Tamim, blameless. I might say like wholesome is uh, a good, uh, I think, a good word for that. Wholesome, complete. Uh, uh, and so, now we do read 
These words are, uh, are used together, not uh, calling a person righteous and, and blameless, but describing them as such. We read these words together when we read about Job, and that's rather interesting. Uh, and of course, these words are used in varieties of places and times uh, in the Bible to describe a number of people. But here, Moses or uh, Noah is called, he's righteous and blameless in his time, in his generation. Now, uh, that can mean one of several things. You may be familiar with the famous adage from the, you know, in the, uh, uh, the Midrash, actually, uh, on this passage, that it says in his time, uh, because it was such a t- terrible time, that uh, Noah was as good as it was going to get. You know, right, blameless in his time. Uh, however, I, probably the reason it's there, it's really there, is because the generation was, was so evil that, wow, here is a righteous person in the midst of all of that. You know? Kind of reminds you a little bit of when you read uh, in the book of Ruth about Boaz. You know, Boaz, uh, uh, the story of Ruth takes place during the time of Judges, when everybody was doing what was right in their own eyes, right? And boom, here is a, a figure that is, uh, that is righteous, right? And so here we see it uh, in chapter 6. Uh, why was he righteous? How could it be? How did he know? Uh, no, did he, maybe he learned it from his father. That, that could very well be. I know we like to spend uh, time sort of filling in those blanks, and uh, certainly nothing wrong with that. Uh, but you, you know what is uh, interesting, a little side note, is that when you come to chapter 12, chapter 11 and chapter 12, and we read about Abraham, the text never tells us anything about Abraham of any reason why, why he would find favor in the eyes of God. And that's why, in uh, especially in the Midrash, you know, in uh, the uh, stories, uh, the moral and ethical stories that fill in the gaps, you know, in the rabbinic literature, that there's a real obsession with trying to figure out a reason why Abraham uh, was uh, was chosen. But the text actually never tells us. But here we do read about Noah that he was a he was a tzaddik, he was a righteous man. He was whole. He was complete. And just like Enoch, right, he walked with God. The difference is, though, with Enoch, uh, he walked with God and then God just took him. But we don't read that in Noah's life, right? No. Uh, He found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah walked with God. Probably when it says walked with God, it's sort of taking, he was a righteous man, blameless in his time, and then sort of, just sort of saying, Noah walked with God. All right. A godly man. And then, of course, it is a genealogy. Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and uh, Japheth. Now we read about that generation. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. Okay? And the Lord looked upon the earth, And behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way uh, upon the earth. Then God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I'm about to destroy them 
uh, with the earth. Now, there's a word here that is repeated over and over and, uh, and over again. And that is the word corrupt. Okay? I, that word for corrupt is also used here in verse 13. Even though you're saying, where does it say, where do we read uh, the word uh, uh, corrupt in verse uh, uh, 13? Well, we read it when it says, I am about to destroy them with the earth. Okay? Uh, shachat. It's a very interesting word. It's used a lot of different ways in the Bible. Okay? Here, it is used to emphasize the corrupt state of affairs in the world. But what's fascinating is that God, we read the same word being used by God in how he's going to, in what he's going to do to them. That's kind of interesting. Okay? So what does the word corrupt mean here? It means really a very good word that it's sort of over, sort of an umbrella word would be ruin or ruination. The world is ruined and God is going to ruin them. So you might say, take what they've done, take what mankind has done to the world and God will judge man in the way man has, has left the world. Uh, other, t- other ways of, uh, of uh, translating uh, this, uh, I-, I think uh, maybe wrecked. <laughs> you know, God, man has wrecked the world. It, I think that uh, w- the picture that comes into my mind is like uh, if you've ever been to a big city where uh, you, know, you, you can go from, sadly, from street to street and neighborhood to neighborhood, and it looks like it's bombed out, you know? Uh, I can remember a long time ago, my father uh, grew up in the Bronx. And uh, I remember he and I uh, going down to a Yankee Stadium, which is uh, in the Bronx, in the South Bronx. And where he grew up was uh, very, very close to Yankee Stadium. So we park the car, we go to the baseball game, and then we get in the car, and my father says to me, drive around, I'm going to show you where to go, and I want you to drive around the Grand Concourse. I want you to drive around the area where I grew up, okay? And it was, it was horrible. <laughs> it was really a horrible experience, because at that time, it was just, uh, it looked like it was bombed out just decrepit, wrecked, dilapidated. What had once been beautiful boulevards, now you couldn't walk down the street. And when we think about how God made the world, you know, pristine, perfect. This world, the world that we live in is what we're talking about. You know, when we read about the Garden of Eden and and how beautiful it was, it's this world. It's not some make-believe world. It's not some fairy tale story somewhere. It's this very world. And when you think about the way God made the world and what man has done to this world, it's wrecked. It's ruined. You know, I, I, I don't know if you've ever been to, you know, speaking of what I was saying about the trip I went on with my father, you know, there are neighborhoods all over the place where you, it's, it's hard to believe, but when houses were first built, you know, in these different areas of cities, I think of Cleveland, another place, right? Some of you are very familiar with it. And you think about the east side of Cleveland, 
right? You think about like Euclid Avenue, you know, Chester, Carnegie, and all those grand boulevards at one time. And now when you drive, you know, uh, from Cleveland Heights into downtown, ay ay ay, you, you can't recognize it. That is what basically what mankind has done to this world. And that here in chapter 6 is what God is grieving over. Uh, and, and so when it says, Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, filled with violence. Again, in verse 12, God looked on the earth and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. And so that is the state of affairs that we find. But God finds a man, Noah. Now, an interesting question, just something to think about is, did God find Noah or did God provide Noah? You know, may I suggest a little of both, right? Uh, That, uh, yes, God found Noah, but God provided Noah. As we will see, God, from the beginning, even with the grave sin of Adam and Eve, did not do away with them, but he provided coverings for them. And if you remember, if you remember way back when, he kicked them out of the Garden of Eden basically to save mankind. You have to go back and listen to that to understand all that. But but it was for ultimately for the salvation of man. After the debacle of Cain and Abel, God provides another son, Seth. God will not do away with mankind. Now we miss God's best for us at least for now, but he, but he does not annihilate us. And it's very important to understand this, that later on, there are some conversations that take place. Two very famous conversations with God and a person, and two very famous people. One is Abraham and one is Moses, right? In Genesis chapter 18, which someday we'll get to, right? That God, that Abraham is arguing with God, questioning God about Sodom and Gomorrah. If there's 50 righteous people, will you destroy this city? If there's 40, if there's 30, if there's 20, if there's one, will you, you know, 10, will you destroy the city, right? Now, the other conversation is after the golden calf with Moses, when it's seemingly God is so angry He's going to destroy all of Israel and start all over again with Moses. And Moses says, wait, 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 wait. You know, you can't do that, God. What will the Egyptians say? What kind of testimony is that? Okay. Now, may I suggest to us that the point of those narratives, the point of those conversations is for humanity to understand that God indeed does justly, that God does what is right. But more than that, that God shows mercy. God, that, that conversation between Abraham and God was to help Abraham and us, the reader, to understand that God is indeed merciful. And most assuredly, the conversation with God and Moses was to help Moses and Israel and us to understand That while the people deserve to die, God showed great mercy and was not going to destroy them all, right? Those who had sinned. Here, we see uh, that uh, God 
finds favor with Noah. Noah is the one who is going to be like a Seth, you might say, another Seth. One, you know, the great debacle with Cain and killing his brother Abel. There was, there was no one there, you know, who is now going to continue uh, humanity and embody the, the covenant blessing of God of, of being fruitful and multiply, Seth. And so now we see once again this great debacle of mankind, but God finds Noah, okay? All right. Now, uh, so we see here that God is going to destroy uh, mankind and the animal world and, and, uh, and, and the world, except for Noah uh, and his family. Now, the next part of the uh, text is what God tells Noah to do. What God tells Noah to do. Now, we're going to come back at the end to, to, you know, uh, to talk a little bit more about this issue of corruption. But first, we just need to get the big picture of what's happening in the text, right? Okay, so we see that God is going to destroy mankind. Noah and his family will be left. Now God tells Noah what to do. In verse 14, Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. Okay, uh, You shall make the ark with rooms it shall, and shall cover it inside and out with pitch. And this is how you shall make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, its height, 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark and finish it to a, a cubit from the top and set the door on the ark uh, in, the, uh, in the side of it. You shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. And behold, uh, even I, I, even I, and bringing the flood waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall, uh, shall perish. Let's stop there. Okay, so he says, build an ark. What is an ark? Right, says Noah. Well, it's funny, this word is only used two times to describe this structure that Noah is building and... Some of you probably know the other one. The basket that Moses, that baby Moses is placed in to save his life as his mother sends him down the river. Isn't that interesting? So it doesn't mean, it's not like the Hebrew word for big boat or something. It's like a receptacle of some sort, okay? So it's kind of interesting, but poetically, it's fantastic the way this operates in the text of the Bible, right? Let the reader understand, right? There's a reason that it's used twice. There's a reason it's only used, used to save Noah and his family and also Moses, two great deliverers uh, whom God saves from death in water, perhaps pointing us from Noah to Moses, perhaps helping us to see that God continually provides deliverance for humanity. And we're to be reminded when we read about Moses, remember, we're not reading it in English, right? We're not reading it in English, uh, in the, in the uh, you know, originally, right? So when we're reading it in Hebrew, oh, there's that word for ark. And so, and then when we read it in Genesis chapter 6, oh, there's that word for basket. See? 
pointing us to these different uh, uh, places in Scripture that speak of deliverance. And so we could call the ark the receptacle of deliverance, right? Wow, that's a rough one, right? It doesn't sound too good. But that's really what it is. It's not the same word as the ark of the covenant. It's not the same word at all, okay? All right, very important. Just in the very same way, just like the tabernacle in the wilderness is a completely different word from Sukkot, like the Feast of Tabernacles. It's only because of, of English translations that we think, oh, these are the, you know, uh, these are the same words. I mean, they're different words. They just have in, in our English translations, the same word happens to be used. So the word for ark is a unique word, a receptacle of deliverance used on the water. <laughs> okay? Not the same word as boat. Very important. All right. Now, so we read about the ark. Uh, nobody really knows what gopher wood is. Okay? Uh, there are people who make a, a, you know, an educated uh, a guess about gopher wood, that it had some kind of water resistance. I mean, I've read that. Uh, but you don't read uh, too much about, like, gopher trees. and You know, my house is built out of gopher wood or... Anything like that, okay? So it's just interesting. Uh, and then you have, I find uh, fascinating, just the fact that we read lots of words about the ark, okay? I think it's fascinating. You know what it reminds When I was reading it, it reminded me of an exodus. Think MSI. Think this coming fall. Uh, all the words that are used to describe the tabernacle in the wilderness, and I know that books have been written, volumes have been written about the symbolism of uh, everything in the tabernacle. And you know, there's nothing wrong with that. That's, that's fine and dandy. But I think that the takeaway is, is about the provision of God. And God, you know, it's very similar. Moses didn't know what a tabernacle looked like, right? God had to tell him. Noah didn't know what the ark looked like. God told him. The difference is, is that we don't read about a bunch of helpers uh, with Noah, like Noah didn't hire shipbuilders, right? Maybe because no one ever heard of one before, right? Uh, but, in, uh, but with uh, uh, Moses, you do read, right, about people who were proficient in, in different uh, ways of building things. Uh, but we read about Noah building uh, this uh, receptacle, this structure. Uh, now, what is interesting, of course, just like with the tabernacle, you know, uh, the size uh, is interesting. And, you know, in the big scheme of things, uh, to understand, I think the most important thing to understand about the ark is that it really was big enough to accomplish what it was meant to do. Okay? So, and I'm going to tell you that I did not figure this out. I don't know exactly how big a cubit is, and I did not take the time to figure it out. I simply cut and pasted this. So if you have an argument, I'll tell you where to go to, 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 with whom to argue, okay? The size of Noah's ark, translating the cubit measurements into feet. We have a vessel that is 440 feet long, 73 feet wide, 44 feet high, and yielding a displacement of about 43,000 tons, whatever that is means. All right. The point to be observed here is that the dimensions of Noah's vessel are completely logical 
and what one would expect to find in a seagoing vessel. The size of Noah's Ark possibly suggests that it was large enough and strong enough to weather the flood, and that it contained enough space, an approximate total deck area of 95,700 square feet, to accommodate the animals, right? And I know that uh, some of you have seen a life-like uh, 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 replica of, uh, of Noah's Ark, and so uh, there you go. I, I, and so I think that's, you know, certainly a very, very important. Also important is, is simply the fact that God describes it in such detail. And so what do the tabernacle in the wilderness and the ark have in common? They have a, certainly a number of things in common. But may I just say that they become the place, the place of refuge. They become the place of deliverance. And to God, they're very important, and so they're described in great detail because they're important. I think it's important for us, when we read a passage like this, not to get sidetracked, you know, with with detail. It's great and fun to study it, but recognize that it is the place of refuge. Just like later on, in the days of Moses, the tabernacle becomes the place uh, of, of refuge. And of course, God has him build this because he says, I, even I, am bringing the flood of water upon it, the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life from under heavens. Everything that is on the earth shall perish. Then he says, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. And every living thing of all flesh you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. It's like the people, male and female. Of the birds after their kind, the animals after their kind, of every creeping thing of the ground after its kind, two of every kind shall come to you to keep them alive. And as for you, take for yourself some of the food which is edible and gather it to yourself and it shall be for food for you and for them. Let me stop there. There is an emphasis here on male and female. Emphasis on male and female. May I suggest that when, when uh, we read in verse 18, but I will establish my covenant with you, the covenant is something that's already been made. Now he's establishing it here, but it's a covenant that's already been made. And yes, we could say that uh, perhaps it is also referring to when we read about the rainbow at the, at the uh, you know after the flood, when God just says by this sign, God promises never to destroy the earth with a flood again, right? But it's not about a promise of not destruction. What I would say it is a promise that God made to the first male and female when He says He blessed them and said, "Be fruitful and multiply." That God is establishing. Here, yes, you are going to be fruitful and multiply. That's why perhaps he says, you and your sons and your wife and your son's wives with you. Very important to be fruitful and multiply. And for the animals to be male and female, to be fruitful and multiply. And that God promises with that rainbow, it's not just a negative promise, I won't destroy the earth with a flood, but I assure you that you will be fruitful and multiply. And mankind will indeed continue in this world, 
because of the promise and the blessing of God. And that is, uh, may I suggest, what he's talking about when he says, I will establish my covenant, my promise uh, about male and female, keeping them alive, that be fruitful uh, and multiply. And we know that as a result of, uh, of Noah's uh, building the ark and his wife and his sons and his sons' wives and male and female animals of their kind come on the ark. That's why we're still here today uh, in what we call the 21st century, but it's a lot longer than that, right? And we're here because of that promise that God made to Adam and Eve and that he, he establishes in Moses, I mean in Noah. And after this flood, there is never a time in world history where there is the assured destruction of humanity. I know that sometimes we like to say, well, God said he wouldn't destroy the world with a flood, but maybe he'll destroy the world in other ways. Uh, I would disagree. I think that the covenant is about being fruitful and multiply and not destroying mankind, and that God provides the assurance that man will indeed be fruitful and multiply, and that is why... Our world is not going to be annihilated. This world is not going to be annihilated. Wow, how can I... What chutzpah it takes to say something like that? I think because of the promise that God makes, how God establishes this covenant, how important it is. Now, there's more to say about that. There's more to say about that. We need to go back here to the corruption part again, okay? This, uh, how man has wrecked the world, ruined the world, right? You know, turn with me to another passage in the scriptures where we read about corruption and what God does. It's in Jeremiah, and it's in the 18th chapter. Jeremiah chapter 18. If you know anything about Jeremiah, you know that, you know, he's called the weeping prophet, Right? And it's interesting, uh, when you think about what we talked about last week, about how God is grieved over sins. Well, you know, in Heschel's book, The Prophets, he talks about the pathos, you know, the, the pathos of God, uh, and how they, the prophets demonstrate God's emotion over the sin of humanity. Uh, as it uh, is played out, of course, in the microcosm of humanity in, in Israel. And that God weeps over the sins of Israel. God grieves over the sin of Israel, right? And we know how Israel has ruined herself. So Jeremiah is all about Israel has ruined herself. Such great blessings and great promise, and now going into captivity. But in the 18th chapter, this is what we read. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I shall announce my words to you. Then I went down to the potter's house, and there he was making something on the wheel. But the vessel that he was making of clay was spoiled, corrupted, ruined, destroyed in the hand of the potter. So he remade it into another vessel as it pleased the potter to make. Now, I'm not going to read the rest of it. You can read the rest of it on your own. But notice what the potter does with the spoiled clay with the ruined clay, 
with the corrupted clay. He doesn't do away with it. He doesn't just throw it away. He reshapes it. He remakes it. He redoes it. He fixes it so that it can ultimately be a glory to God, that, so that it can ultimately fulfill its the calling. And may I suggest you think about that when you go back to first chapter 6. Yes, the world is corrupt. Yes, a man has corrupted himself, his relationships, uh, and the world. But God finds Noah, right? And although we see here that uh, God, we'll see it next week, certainly, the flood itself, but God makes a provision for Noah and his family and the animals so that they can continue to live on, that humanity, that mankind is not annihilated, right? But we know after this story that while it is true that a man is saved from complete annihilation, the heart of man is not changed. You're still going to have corruption. That's why to answer a question we might have is when we look at the world today, wow, it seems kind of like maybe what we see there in Noah's day. God brought a flood, but it didn't seem to change the heart of man. But you see, God is in the business of reconciliation, of redemption. And that is why after Noah, we're going to read about another man who's called, and that is Abraham, right? And out of the loins of Abraham come Isaac and come Jacob uh, and comes Judah and David and ultimately uh, the Messiah of Israel. And in Yeshua, certainly, uh, we have not only a vehicle to save us from destruction, but now we have a changed heart. And you see, what God promises about this world, even though there is corruption in this world, and as we read in Romans chapter 8, that the, the world itself, the creation itself, groans waiting for the redemption of our body, that the day is going to come when God is going to take this spoiled world, and there's going to be a new heaven, and a new earth, and a new Jerusalem, and, and we will be raised from the dead. And the day is going to come when God is... He's not going to do away with this world. He's going to reshape, reform, redo this world so that we will be a glory to him as, as humanity. And that's what we read, you know, in this week's Haftorah portion, because this is Rosh Chodesh, the beginning of a new month, a new moon. And every time there's a new month, you know, it's a reminder to us that the day is going to come when there's not just going to be a new month, but there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And every time there's a new month, we read the same thing from Isaiah chapter 66. Why do we read Isaiah 66? Because at the end of the chapter, in verse 22, for just as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, to endure before me, declares the Lord, so your offspring and your name will endure. And it will be from new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath. All mankind will come and bow down before me, says the Lord. We can just stop there. All mankind. 
And so here in the sixth chapter of Genesis, all of mankind is destroyed except for Noah. But what Yeshua does, he ultimately saves mankind, a remnant from all the nations. From every tongue, tribe, nation we read, a remnant from all the nations. And that is so hopeful uh, uh, for us to understand. Now, we might say, what, just a remnant? What, what, does, what does that mean? Well, the testimony from the scriptures is, is that it's always going to be a group within the whole who are going to believe and obey, right? We see here one, Noah, right? And then there's going to be, you know, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And then as Israel develops, it's going to be a small group within Israel right? The remnant of Israel. And then in Isaiah, we read about a remnant from Damascus. We read about a remnant from Moab. We read about a remnant from Egypt. We read about a remnant from Assyria, even. See? Uh, And so the day is going to come when God is going to bring restoration, and it comes in Yeshua. Today, we are the tip of the sword of that. Today, we are the beginning of that restoration in Messiah Yeshua, in his resurrection. We identify even though we're still in this world and we're still in these bodies. But we have been transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. So so we experience this deliverance. What is it that we've been delivered from? The domain of darkness? You know what? Well, I'll just say it and then we'll we'll talk about that at the beginning of next time. The The domain of darkness is the way of this world. The way the world thinks, the way the world acts, the way the world acts out. Uh, the domain of darkness includes our, 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 um, the things that we are. The domain of darkness includes whatever we are bound in chains to, whether it be um, habits, attitudes, addictions, relational issues, uh, issues related to you know, other, other things. But we have been transferred from that to the, to the kingdom of his beloved son. Yes, we still may struggle, but we have indeed been delivered. And it's not just about going to heaven when I die, but it's about living a transformed life right now. But we will talk more about that uh, next time as we move into the flood itself and the judgment itself. But for now, let us be thankful and recognize that God indeed does not do away with the world. That he found a man in Noah whom he provided He provided Yeshua for us. And indeed, he is the savior of the world. He is the Messiah of Israel and the nations. And when we identify with the Messiah of Israel, it's as if we get in the ark and we are spared from the wrath because God is indeed a sovereign God and there will indeed be a wrath to come. In Messiah Yeshua, there is indeed deliverance and salvation and a hope for this world in the future. Let's pray. Lord, thank you, God, for uh, uh, Noah, Lord, and the story of Noah and, uh, and the ark. Lord, thank you, God, that you indeed did not do away with this world then, nor in the days of Abraham, Lord, uh, nor in our day. God, may we find comfort in that, and may we realize that you do have indeed a future for this world, but that future is all wrapped up in Messiah Yeshua. There is no future outside the ark. There is no future outside of Yeshua. Lord, I pray, God, that we would embrace him and that we would live his way and that we would live that future 
indeed, even today in our lives. And we thank you and we pray in Messiah's name.